Matthew 7, starting at verse 1, hear the word of the Lord. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. After the sermon, we'll sing and respond Psalm 141, the stanzas 2 and 4. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, at first glance, it appears that our text is an isolated saying of Jesus, one having no connection with what proceeds, where Jesus teaches us not to be anxious about our bodily needs, and having no apparent relevance with what follows, where he exhorts us to be persistent in praying to the Father. What's the connection between the commands, do not worry, do not judge, don't stop praying? Upon closer scrutiny, we see that these are not merely isolated sayings of Jesus. In the last verses of chapter 6, the dominant theme is seeking God's kingdom. Verse 33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Jesus' use of the verb to seek is striking. Isn't God's kingdom a reality that men eagerly await and that will appear in the last days? Its glory will be so great and visible that men will not have to search for it, will they? What's more public, more splendid than God's kingdom? John the Baptist and Jesus himself at the beginning of his ministry had declared, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. If the kingdom is near, why does Jesus tell us to seek it? Well, that word emphasizes that entrance into the kingdom will be a matter of faith, of finding. And that theme is carried over into chapter 7. The first six verses about being humble toward our neighbor can only be understood in the context of seeking the righteousness of God's kingdom. The righteousness of his kingdom must not only be apparent in our dependence on the Father for all our material needs, do not worry, but also in the way we act toward our brothers and sisters in the Lord. Do not judge. Further on in verse 7, the kingdom theme comes back. The same wording as in 6 verse 33 is even used. Seek and you will find. And again in verse 14, there are few who find the narrow gate. But you say that transition from the end of chapter 6 to our text still seems so abrupt and disjointed. Jesus is telling us not to worry about what we'll eat or drink or wear. Then all of a sudden he says, judge not that you be not judged. Is there another way of connecting these two teachings aside from the kingdom theme? 
The changeover from worrying to judging, however, isn't as abrupt as it appears. In 6 verse 34, Christ mentioned the trouble, or as it literally says, the evil of each day. Sufficient for the day is its own evil. And now he expands on one aspect of that in our text. How must we act toward the bad things, the evil, that we observe in the lives of others? Do we judge them harshly in a condemning spirit? Or do we forgive and pray for sanctification, our own and theirs? And so I proclaim to you the word of God under this theme. Christ our Savior commands us, do not judge. And we'll see two things, the meaning of this prohibition and the ground for keeping this prohibition. So who are you to judge? Who are you to say that faith healing and miracles of Pentecostals are wrong? Who are you to say that the rejection of infant baptism by Baptist churches is unscriptural? Who are you to pronounce homosexuality as a sin? Who are you to judge? Church members and non-church members are quick to quote these words of Jesus when confronted by someone who tells them that what they said or did was wrong. The fact that we also love this verse and wrongly apply it not only reveals the deceitfulness of our hearts, but also that we have bought into the spirit of our time, into post-modernism. What is postmodernism? Well, you can't understand what postmodernism is unless you know what modernism was. Modernism believed that reason had the ability to find overarching transcendent truths. The study of history and science led you, it claimed, to facts and certainties to what is right and wrong. In a word, to truth. Religion in the Bible nothing but a bunch of superstitions. Postmodernism, however, declares that reason has failed to find any overarching truth. All we can do is look for truth within ourselves, which explains, by the way, the interest in psychology. Psych 101 has high enrollment in universities. The postmodernist claims that there is no supreme standard. There's nothing out there that's absolutely true. He has no confidence in history or science. Instead, he embraces all the religions of the world as long as one is not put forward as the truth because truth is relative and subjective. What's true for you is not necessarily true for me. My idea is right, not because it agrees with a divine standard, but simply because I think it. And the same applies to everyone else, whether you're an atheist, skeptic, Christian, Buddhist, Jew, or Muslim. As a result, the issue is not whether something is true or false, right or wrong. The issue is, is it fair? That's the watchword today. Have you noticed how much our children have taken that over when reprimanded or grounded 
the first thing that usually comes out of their mouth is, that's not fair, Dad. In postmodern thought, the gospel isn't fair. If you believe that there's salvation in nobody else but Jesus Christ, you're not being fair to those who believe that there's salvation in Krishna or Allah or any other God. In our day and age, no one should hear or say anything that offends. Everyone is spiritual regardless of what they believe. God becomes whatever you want him to be. He exists to confirm your wishes and desires and your idea of truth. What has all that you ask got to do with these words of Jesus, do not judge? A great deal. We have absorbed, unintentionally perhaps, a bit of that postmodern thinking. When a church member confronts us with something in our lifestyle that he or she thinks is unscriptural, for example, the entertainment we pursue, then we often reply with Matthew 7, Judge not that you be not judged. We triumphantly quote it, to turn away criticism and to even underline how unchristian it is to criticize. Judge not lest you be judged, we say, with a warning tone and a wagging finger. We've been paralyzed by our postmodern culture to privatize our convictions. Is that what Jesus is advocating? That we must zip our lips when we see and hear ungodly things in the life of a fellow believer, it's certainly easier than confronting that person. Calling someone to account takes courage, Bible knowledge, tact, prayer. Many families, for example, have a member who has withdrawn from the church. When that happens, how often do we not think, Who am I to judge? I'm not going to stir the pot. Who knows, in his heart, he may still love the Lord. Besides, God's in control. He knows about this. And um, I have enough problems and sins in my own life. It's not my duty to hoe the weeds in my neighbor's garden. If we took these words of Jesus out of context, then indeed, we would be justified in concluding that no one has a right to tell me what I'm doing wrong. Especially not when it concerns matters like dress code or body piercing or what movies I watch, what music I listen to. As you know, however, we may never interpret a text outside its context. Jesus' prohibition can't possibly mean that we must suspend our critical faculties in relation to other people, that we must turn a blind eye to their faults, pretending we didn't notice them, that we must avoid all criticism and refuse to take a stand on principled issues. Christ isn't telling us that we may not discern between truth and error, goodness and evil. Limiting ourselves to chapter 7, we see that Jesus expects us to make judgments. We need discernment to see the plank in our own eye and the speck in our brother's. In verse 6, 
Christ tells us to avoid giving what is holy to dogs or pearls to pigs. Obviously, that means we need to make a judgment on who are dogs and pigs. The same in verse 15. Christ warns us to beware of false prophets. How can you guard against them if you don't exercise critical discernment? If you don't judge their teaching and preaching with the word of God? We may not then take verse 1 as a blanket prohibition of all judging. That's clear from chapter 7 and from the rest of the Bible. What then did Jesus mean by judge not? The Greek word has a variety of meanings, one of which is to condemn, which is suggested by the context. We may indeed judge a person's words and deeds, but not in a spirit of self-righteousness, harshly and without mercy. That much is clear from verse 3 and following. Why do you see the speck in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own? And suddenly Jesus becomes more personal in this verse because he switches from the plural form of the pronoun to the singular. Why do you singular? And so no one can hide behind the communal you. Each one of us is being individually addressed. It's human nature, isn't it, to fixate on the sins of others while we ignore our own. We're reminded of what true examination is every time we partake of the Lord's Supper. The the form says, first, let everyone consider his sins and accursedness so that he, detesting himself, may humble himself before God. Our tendency is to consider the sins of our brother, to detest him because of his sins, and to exalt ourselves before God. How necessary for us to hear these words of Christ from Matthew. How true that we are more vigilant with respect to the sins of our brothers and sisters than our own. And I think Jesus conveyed that in the choice of verbs in verse 3. We see, and the tense of the verb indicates that we do that continuously, we keep seeing, looking at the speck in our brother's eye, but we don't even notice the log in our own. We hardly give it a second thought. Yes, I, I may have made a mistake, but it's nothing in comparison with all the wrong in his life. We scrutinize the lives of others. We merely glance at our own. And that too is conveyed in the text. In order to see a speck in your brother's eye, you have to be looking intently, studying his eye. Yes, why is it that we see the speck of sawdust in our brother's eye? It's not because it's so large and glaring that we can't help but notice it. It doesn't shriek at you and demand attention. When I detect something so small that it can float in a sunbeam, it's only because I'm searching for it. Searching for specks. Isn't it true that we can be preoccupied with the ugly and dark things in the lives of others? If a brother does something good, That hardly arouses any discussion. 
Only when he dies, perhaps, do we reflect on the good deeds he has done, how much we will miss him. But for the most part, we just cannot let go of the faults and failures of others. Why? Why do we search for specks? Generally speaking, we do so because we hope to find something wrong. Satan does that as well. When the Lord called attention to the blamelessness and the uprightness of his servant Job, Satan was ready to accuse. He was amazed at how easily the Lord was taken in. Does Job fear God for nothing? And he went on to suggest that he was a selfish man who feared God only because God had blessed him so richly. Yes, outwardly, Lord, he serves you, but inwardly he doesn't. Take away all his possessions and you'll see that his obedience has ulterior motives. Well, just like the accuser of our brothers, we can have the sharpest eyes sometimes, 20-20 vision, for what we think might be sin in the lives of our brothers and sisters. Why do we hope to find something wrong in others? For a number of reasons, I think. Sometimes we look for the worst in order to pacify our own consciences. When our faults and follies and failures make us uncomfortable, we often derive a bit of comfort by saying, I'm not the only one that ever committed that sin. We feel that the number of the guilty somehow lessens our guilt. But of course that's not the case. If I'm dying of cancer, It doesn't help me in the least to know that thousands of other people are dying of the same disease. Yet we seek comfort in our moral sickness by looking at the sins of others and convincing ourselves that theirs are as great or greater than ours. Then we often indulge in fault-finding because we have the strong conviction that by tearing the other fella down, We're somehow building ourselves up. If a mother carries on about how sister so-and-so is a lazy and shoddy mom, doesn't take care of her kids, doesn't keep her house clean, she's saying all those negative things so that you, by comparison, realize what a paragon of perfection she is. Our self-worth and dignity rise when we focus on the brokenness and shortcomings of others. Isn't that what our Lord illustrated in the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector praying? The Pharisee thanked God that he was not like other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even like that tax collector. See what he was doing? Focusing on the sins of someone else. And sure enough, the the Pharisee started parading all his virtues and good deeds before God. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of everything that I own. I do this. I do that. But which of the two went home justified? The tax collector. Why? Because he knew how great his own sin and misery were. He was overwhelmed and grieved by the heinousness of his own iniquity, so much so that he hardly dared come close to anybody in the temple. He stood far off and would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven. That's how ashamed he was. 
And beating his chest, he cried, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Let's not be like the Pharisee, who was so busy cataloging the vices of others, he forgot to ask God's mercy and pardon for himself. Something similar happened on Golgotha. You'll recall the one criminal hanging beside Jesus was busy criticizing others, even the Christ of God. But the other criminal went right where his companion went wrong. He took a look at himself. He publicly and pointedly acknowledged that he was suffering justly because of the crime he committed. No one, beloved, ever finds God by confessing the sin of someone else. We have to confess and repent of our own sins. Finally, we we often look for specks out of sheer envy. Of all the vices, surely envy is the most malignant. Don't confuse it with jealousy. Jealousy may be a perfectly right emotion. If a husband, for example, gives his love to a woman other than his wife, his wife has a right to be jealous. Jealousy is a child of love. But envy is a child of hate. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13, Love does not envy. And as you know, envy has a long and ugly record. When Cain's offering was rejected and Abel's accepted, Cain couldn't stand it. Out of envy, he struck his brother dead. The elder son, out of envy, did his best to spoil the feast when his prodigal brother came back home. We look for specks in the eyes of others because perhaps we're envious of their open relationship with the Lord or their position, their wealth, their love for the church. On top of that, it's common for us to relieve ourselves of our secret sins by transferring those very sins to others. You can often tell what a person feels most guilty about by listening to what he most loudly condemns in other people. Why is the practice of looking for specks so wrong? Well, first of all, it's wrong in motive. Of course, there is such a thing as constructive criticism and scriptural admonition. We realize the truth of what Solomon wrote in Proverbs 27. Open rebuke is better than love carefully concealed. Solomon's father acknowledged the same in Psalm 141. We're going to sing those words of David in a moment. Let a righteous man strike me at his kindness. Let him rebuke me at his oil on my head. A real friend points out the errors of the one he's earnestly seeking to help. Our text isn't telling us to wink at sin. But the man described in verse 3 isn't doing it in goodwill. Though he claims to be helping his brother, he's actually being a hypocrite. Christ himself calls him that in verse 5. You hypocrite. Practice of wrong judging, of looking for something bad instead of good, hurts the person with whom we find fault. He can be deeply wounded by the criticism. His reputation might be smeared in such a way that a door of opportunity that would have been open to him is now closed. 
Not only does the habit of searching for specks hurt the one being judged, but also the one judging. If we go looking for the worst in people, we'll find it. It's true here as elsewhere that he who seeks finds. However, when focusing on the sins and the weaknesses of another, we naturally overlook his or her good deeds and strengths. In searching for something to condemn, we fail to see anything to commend. Even Christ had no moral beauty for those who were seeking only to find fault. Tell me what you're seeking in your brother, and I'll tell you what you're likely to find. If I wanted to know the layout of an unexplored land of mountains and valleys, forests and streams, I wouldn't send a vulture to spy it out. In one respect, he would be well equipped for the task. Piercing eyes, that perfect vantage point from way above. But though he might fly over majestic mountains with waterfalls and so many other lovely vistas, if he could talk, he wouldn't have anything to say about that. The one thing he would report is how many rotting carcasses he found. Why? Not because there was nothing but rotting carcasses in the land. That's all he was looking for. Not only do we end up missing the facts about others if we judge wrongly, but we also don't face the truth about ourselves. Generally speaking, the keener our eyes become to the faults of others, the blinder they become to what's wrong with ourselves. We look at our neighbor's sin with a microscope and at our own through the wrong end of a telescope. We see clearly, very clearly, the speck in his eye, but we don't consider the log in our own. David was fit to be tied at the man who stole his neighbor's lamb, all the while covering the fact that he was guilty of a meaner and crueler theft, the wife of Uriah. The Lord also gives us reason or ground for keeping this prohibition, the second point. Our Savior tells us not to condemn others, not to judge them harshly or self-righteously, because we will be judged. And he elaborates on that in verse 2. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Now, some explain these words like this. If we have a critical spirit, then we're inviting criticism against ourselves. If we judge others strictly, then they will turn around and judge us by the same standard. If we understood Christ's words in that conditional sense, then it would be better for us not to judge anything or anyone, wouldn't it? Don't say a word. Just let everything slide. Don't bind others to a high standard because when we ourselves are judged, no one can be too hard on us. If we're charitable and merciful to others, if we always think the best of them and don't point out their faults, then others will in turn deal gently and considerately with us. Well, that is not what our Savior is saying. Notice that the text doesn't say that if you judge others, then you too will be judged. No. It simply states there 
that we will be judged and measured according to the judgment and measurement we have used. By whom? By God. Not by fellow believers, but by the judge of all the earth, by him who hears every idle word, who sees every secret sin, and knows every sinful intention of my heart. Our text is also not saying that if you judge others leniently, then God will go easy on you come judgment day. Don't judge anyone, then you'll face less risk later on. Not at all. Christ is impressing on me that before I get caught up in judging my brother, to take note of the judgment that hangs over my head, Whatever our judgments might be, God's judgments will be according to truth and without respect of persons, Romans 2. And so we understand our Lord to mean beware of forming wrong judgments of your brothers and sisters, especially hasty, rash, unmerciful ones, because all your judgments are to be reviewed in the searching light of God's tribunal. And Christ underlines that in verse 6. Holy things belong to the priests and the Levites. They ensure, for example, that the meat of the peace offering doesn't get tossed outside the city gates where the dogs will eat it up. Similarly, pearls aren't given to pigs. They'll just trample them underfoot. The Lord mentions dogs and pigs. Because both were unclean animals, according to the law. By using such stark imagery, Christ is showing how absurd, how ridiculous it is to neglect the judgment that is coming over us. It's obvious that priests will keep the holy things for themselves. And of course, Pearls are considered so precious that people will wear them instead of feed them to pigs. Look how that fits now with the preceding verses. Jesus has been teaching that there are people who know right and wrong. They understand the righteousness of God's kingdom so well that they can even detect the speck of sin in their neighbor's eye. However, they should be applying that understanding of God's righteousness to themselves. They need to take that 12-foot 2 by 10 out of their own eye. And there lies the connection with verse 6. Eat these holy things yourself. Or if Christ is referring to clothing, wear the priestly robes yourself. God's law, which is being explained here by Christ in the Sermon on the Mount, is like a pearl, precious and costly, Cherish and embrace and apply it to yourself before you throw it in front of others. Because there comes a day of judgment. And that aspect is also apparent in the last part of verse 6. Lest they turn to attack you. Whoever does not adorn himself with the holy precious gift of Christ's commandments is less than an unclean animal, less than a Gentile. As Christ pointed out elsewhere, the men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it. Verse 6 
underscores the truth of the preceding five verses. Judge not lest you be judged. Make sure that your life reflects the righteousness of God's kingdom. How can we fight against condemnatory judging? How can we judge properly? There are five principles that can guide us. Number one, don't fill in the facts yourself. So often we make a judgment about a brother on the basis of rumor and assumption. We need to follow the divine wisdom of Proverbs. He who answers before listening, that is his folly and shame. Number two, don't judge someone's motives. Limit yourselves to his or her words and actions. Only God can read the heart. Only he can determine whether motives are pure or impure. We must restrict ourselves to what we see and hear. Number three, judge biblical or principled issues, not personal preferences or or matters of indifference. There are areas over which we can agree to disagree. For example, over whether the wine of Holy Supper should be drunk from a communal cup or individual cups. Number four, our judgments are limited to time. We judge temporally. But God makes the final, the eternal judgment. He sees the whole picture. He has all the facts. He knows not only the actions, but also the intentions of every single person. And number five, I need to be aware of my own sins and shortcomings and deal with them accordingly. As Jesus says in verse five, first take the log out of your own eye. Only then we will we be able to see clearly to do what? To condemn our brother for his sin? To gossip about the speck in his eye? To delight in seeing that he too falls short of the mark? No, Christ says. Then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So, if you do rebuke him, Do it in brotherly love, with a genuine concern for his growth in holiness before God. Behind our text, brothers and sisters, behind the whole Sermon on the Mount, we must see our own acquittal out of grace alone through Christ. We would despair, would we not, if we didn't hear in these words, do not judge, the liberating power of Christ. Yes, we hear in those words the good news of him who took our judgment upon himself. We know that Christ was judged by the Father. That he was condemned for our transgressions of the ninth commandment, for bearing false witness, for condemning and joining in the condemnation of others rashly and unheard. Let us show in how we deal with sin in a brother's life That we know the joy of having the log in our own eye removed by Christ's perfect sacrifice on the cross. May the way in which we judge each other, brothers and sisters, be a testimony to the gracious way 
that God has dealt with us in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen.